1: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week, The Economist is asking, is there truth in caricature? Along the way, we'll hear about how to scribble a cartoon Donald Trump.
2: You start with a you know a giant U that would represents his jowls and everything that's held in it, then you plop on the top of it almost a flat cap of blonde hair.
1: And we'll also discover the art of the Maggie Thatcher impression. I remember this interview with Sir Robin Day. Well, should you know, her head is
0: tilted to one side and um, she's being very reasonable, even though he's being awfully stupid.
1: Well, from Donald Trump's hair to Hillary's robotic speech and Margaret Thatcher's walk, no one is safe. Not even the Queen and her swinging handbag from the barbs of caricature. But what is the point of parody? After Donald Trump's unexpected victory, many were critical of the media for not taking the candidate seriously enough, so easy was he to lampoon. But beyond the laughs, do actors and cartoonists still have the ability to subvert, or does political commentary get lost somewhere between the giggles? With me to answer those questions are two experts with an eye for imitation. Hayden Gwynn, here in our London studio. Hayden's a well-decorated actress, known for her role as Margaret Thatcher in the stage production of The Audience. She starred there alongside Dame Helen Mirren. And more recently, she's been a delightfully over-the-top and devious Camilla Parker Bowles in the TV comedy The Windsors. Hello, Hayden. Hello, man. And your many other parts. <laughs> And linking to us from Baltimore is Cal Callaher, the award-winning editorial cartoonist. Cal has worked for The Economist for nearly 40 years, drawing more than 4,000 cartoons of public figures along the way, from Boris Yeltsin to Augusto Pinochet, and most recently, a pouty and delicately coiffed Donald Trump. Hello, Cal.
2: Nice to see you.
1: Hayden and Cal, now on the surface your crafts, acting and drawing are very different but I think there are some parallels in the way that you approach characters and caricature that we'd like to explore with you. So Hayden, starting with you, you're playing Camilla Parker Bowles in the Channel 4 comedy show The Windsors. You've also played Mrs T in Peter Morgan's The Hmm. Audience. What do you think the first step is in embodying public figures and amplifying certain traits to bring them to life?
0: Well, firstly, for an actor, it's a rather unusual thing to be asked to do. You know, you're much more usually playing fictional, imagined characters. So, if you are playing in in both those cases, people who are extremely well known, I suppose you might start with, you know, the traits that you think are absolutely essential. Uh, and in the case of Margaret Thatcher I mean before I was cast I was asked to do a a reading of it when they were trying out the play and they said oh you know don't worry about impersonation it really doesn't matter we're just trying to get a feel for the play but but the truth is you know if you're tackling Margaret Thatcher you cannot get away from that voice there are many other things but you're going to start with the voice so I did I thought I've got to and I was practising in the kitchen, trying to sort of rally a bit of Margaret Thatcher into my vocal cords. And when I'd finished, my partner had been watching telly next door, sort of opened the kitchen door and went, oh my God, it was all I could do not to rush through the kitchen door and stab you with the bread knife. And <laughs> so I thought, OK, I'm doing something right. In the case of Camilla Parker Bowles, who knows what Camilla sounds like mm. I mean I've researched it I've listened to her on uh, you know YouTube or whatever but people do not know mostly what Camilla sounds like the first thing I thought when I said to my agent when I was going up for the road, well I mean it sort of begins and ends with the wig doesn't it <laughs> you know the, the, in her case you know that look that hair is is my starting point
1: and Cal do you share that view that you start with one simple feature of the person and build outwards
2: Well, I'm sure that we have a lot in common, the way that we uh, look and approach people, because we try to get to that essential part of them. I'm looking, of course, specifically at their face. And when you do that, you you need lots of photos. But I think what's even better is to see footage or actually to see the person in person, to see them move and to understand how those physical um, pieces of their face actually reveal something about their character Because if you just draw someone by taking the features and pulling them apart and reassembling them, you can get basically an empty statue when in fact what you're trying to create is recreate that person, albeit in in a distorted form. I was really curious about what Hayden said about the voice because I often find that it helps me a lot to hear the voice of the person when I'm drawing them because it does reveal something very deep about them.
1: Well, we went on a roadshow together not so long ago. And, Cal, you undertook a rather dangerous mission. You tried to get me, having placed 28th out of 30th in my school drawing class, to draw Donald Trump, but what I thought was so interesting there was that you had these very assured strokes but things like a mouth or the tilt of a line at the nose by a fraction can really make such a difference as to how things look.
2: It is it's in fact that magic is one of the things that I find incredibly fascinating about the whole process of drawing and perception of drawing. Particularly when you're doing caricatures where you're you know really sometimes pulling a face completely far apart. And it's just lines on paper, yet you will show it to all these various different people. And they would recognize the person, even though if you put a photograph of the same person next to those lines, they wouldn't look anything alike. So there's some real mystery magic to this whole notion of caricature and exaggeration.
1: When we came to Trump, why did you choose the features that you wanted us to pull out first of all? I noticed we started with a nose. Why
2: well <laughs> you know when I, when I'm teaching an audience particularly of, of newcomers to to caricature I've distilled these very complex faces down to literally a handful of lines and I try to do it in such an order that uh, everyone will be able to easily do it and remember it and Donald Trump is probably the most easy caricaturable character that we've had on the scene for the longest time partly because he he's decided to um, Give the cartoonists around the world the honor of his hair, <laughs> and and then he's a real estate magnet, and his his face has got more real estate by the day. It seems to be growing and sagging in in all sorts of directions. So you start with a you know a giant U that would, represents his jowls and everything that's held in it. Then you plop on the top of it almost a flat cap of blonde hair and then um, some very pinched eyes and uh, a short little nose and then an open oval mouth, and you've only almost got them just there.
1: It's a bit like listening to Mary Berry telling you how to bake a cake. You know in theory that that's how it should work. <laughs> but, uh, you, uh, uh, my attempts are available on Twitter if anyone wants to have a look. But that's the, the skill of, of the craft, you two. But what is the goal of caricature on stage, on screen, in the pages of, of The Economist? I mean, Hayden, when you take this kind of role... What do you think your task is? Usually for an actor, it's not actually caricature.
0: I mean, it may be in some cases, but we're not talking about perhaps the, the nearest analogy would be for people who are impersonating in satirically. You know, it's Alastair McGowan or Morgana Robinson, you know, mm. completely brilliant and deliberately taking some of those cartoonist skills in, in real life. That's satire,
1: and you're suggesting that's something a bit different.
0: It It is. I mean, in the case of Margaret Thatcher, I mean, I was on record in the programme, having been interviewed earlier in rehearsal, to say that I wasn't interested in doing caricature. It's also about the writing and the intention. You might start at a certain point and you might end up somewhere else. So I'm not doing Hayden Gwynn's version of Margaret Thatcher. I'm doing Peter Morgan's version of Margaret Thatcher as played by Hayden Gwynn, as directed by Stephen Daldry. So there's this sort of collaborative effort towards something. And you may end up somewhere further down the line to caricature than you intended. But It might actually be the audience who decides which is which. And, you know, some of the more right wing journalists might have criticised the performance as more of a caricature than other people who saw more
1: truth in it. And know you've said, quoted an Italian Renaissance painter, in fact, as saying that good caricature is more true to life than reality itself. That's a bold claim
2: caricature, of course, when you just throw that word out, people automatically think of highly exaggerated, slightly unfair depictions. When I've seen the whole range of what caricature embodies, it's it's more about interpretation of a face. And maybe that's a little bit closer too to what Hayden was talking about is that, you know, you're interpreting something. It is a kind of a caricature. It's adding your personal flavor and your personality almost into that Person and I've seen some caricatures that are as wild as Gerald Scarfe and others that are closer to the actual photographs of the person. But all the time, it is about a kind of commentary on the face. Picasso was a caricaturist, you know. He he took faces and exaggerated them. I think we see them a lot everywhere. They're just not the the realm of cartoonists and and streetside vendors.
0: But I, I get that thing of you know that being truth in the caricature you know cartoonists can make you see something that you were sort of maybe unconscious or subconsciously aware of but they can reveal it for you by dint of exaggerating certain
1: or bringing forward certain traits and I think the art of exaggeration is really what we're trying to to pin down here because usually if you take the the written word at the Economist at least, you know, it's not usually trying unless for comic effect or for emphasis to say something very exaggerated. People would knock you down for that. Rather different when you come to do a caricature or a portrayal of some characters in both of your worlds. And I'm thinking first of, of your Camilla Parker Bowles in, in the Windsors. She's Camilla taken to sort of fantastical extremes, isn't she? She's scheming, she's jealous, she, she gets pregnant so that she and Charles can have a rival <laughs> to, to the throne. Now, I don't think anyone is seriously accusing the Duchess, she said hastily, but, but it's not about how she really is, but there is a hope of capturing something there. Um, here's the scene from the show in which you, playing Camilla with Harry Enfield, your Prince Charles, are arguing with Will and Kate. Do you really want to take us on? We've got the whole of the British establishment behind us. The armed forces, MI5, the Dimblebiz. What
0: have you got? The National Union of Teachers. We've got something much bigger on our side. Just us. And the gypsies.
1: You're laughing at your own script there, (laughs) (laughs) Hayden. If not
0: my own joke.
1: (laughs) If not your own joke, but uh, why not? Um, But are you trying to get to a truth about the royals and their way of behaving or entitlement? Or is it purely off-the-wall comedy?
0: Well, it, it's a bit of both, isn't it? I mean, it's not biting political satire, you know, it's not, um, or, or even spitting image made flesh. It, it, it's a particular brand of British comedy, which is very gloriously silly and daft. I think with Camilla, it's so far from what I imagine Camilla to be that in a way there is a caricature involved, actually, in that role. But what it is, is a caricature of sort of 1980s soap opera. So what you are actually spoofing is the, the Dallas 80s yes, soap yeah. opera villainous. So, so in a way, this Camilla is as if portrayed by Joan Collins in a soap opera called Balmoral.
1: But and it's also about the way that audiences see, particularly for uh, an actor like yourself, it's in the moment. It has to work at a particular time when they're sitting in their seats and looking at the stage. And I know you, you played Margaret Thatcher on stage the day that she died in old age in 2013. That must have been very reactive experience.
0: Yes, uh, yes, it was very, there was a, you know, it was such a huge, as you remember, a huge story here. There was a real frisson, Peter Morgan was sent out to make a speech at the top of the show, just sort of acknowledging the event. And But just the whole atmosphere, normally up until that point... You know, Thatcher doesn't appear in the play till the second half, but there's a great sense of anticipation. She's the only other woman in the play and the audience are really sort of waiting for it. And I'd, I'd have this sort of long walk and she had this slightly odd walk, which I tried to do. And, and then this very deep curtsy, which if you look at the pictures, she also did these insanely deep curtsies to the Queen. Which always got a sort of big, sort of comic reaction. Well, on, the, on that day, when I came on and I walked and into the curtsy and into her first line, you know, I just came onto this tumbleweed silence. And, uh, and I realized the audience were absolutely petrified. They didn't know. How they were allowed to react, and the feeling from the it was so powerful. All of a thousand people feeling exactly the same thing that it, it, it almost—they almost infected me with their nerves. For a moment, I could have. Crumbled, and I sort of could see Helen and me sort of mentally take a deep breath and go, No, this is a historical moment, it's the same show, it's the same thing, and sort of grab it it. by the neck and do it and sort of force them to come on board with you. But it that whole period up until the funeral, it it was sort of like a roller coaster, it's a little bit hysterical.
1: we can't get you to do your Mrs. Thatcher walk, which I think is what I remember of the <laughs> the arrival of the Grand Dame from from that play. She but but a we, little bit like but a we can tree, put yeah. you to, put you to to, to work a, a little bit with Mrs. Thatcher's voice if you can summon her up for us.
0: She basically had two essential vocal modes, and the first one was was this, you know, very soft voice that when she was talking to you I remember this interview with Sir Robin Day where she you know her head is tilted to one side and um, she's being very reasonable even though he's being awfully stupid. (laughs) Her other mode was much more the one we're associated with the dispatch box you know where she's getting really quite worked up and saying no a lot no 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 and that's you know you ended up Using that more because that will reach the back of the stalls. Uh, I mean, I am exaggerating now, but you 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 see that the issue was I, I need I sort of needed one tone, but actually was required to use the other.
1: What did you go for on Camilla as a voice? You said earlier that we didn't really know her voice. You had to, to look her up on YouTube, and I'm sure a lot of other people would. Too. Yes. In, did you just have a freedom? Then yes, to, I had a complete freedom a posh because voice. It, uh, to, a fact, English to very English. Yes, voice. in
0: fact, her voice is not. Skinner, who plays William, we do actually caricature poshness generally to ludicrous and hopefully comic effect rather than the case of Camilla. Where if I was doing the most brilliant Camilla impersonation in the world, most people wouldn't know. So, and it's, so <laughs> jo- and it's not funny, so don't bother. You
1: might get a note from Prince <laughs> Charles and you've got her, absolutely. <laughs> um,
0: oh, somebody did tell me that I was very like her sister. Who knew? <laughs>
1: Cal, I'm struck there by just the gamut of emotion that caricature, whether it's on the page, the stage, the screen, has to run. You can have something uproariously funny like that, but it can then be cut up against the fact that you know, someone very famous, very divisive, but extremely famous, has died. You've had to draw after terrible events, after tragedies. You had to draw after nine eleven, and I'm, I'm just looking at a drawing of yours that we have here on the desk. It's the Statue of Liberty and Uncle Sam embracing as the smoke emanates from the site of the World Trade Center. I'm guessing quite a lot of thought went into that.
2: You, when you have to do those type of works, because when you're an editorial cartoonist, you know, you kind of live within two polarities, you know, editorial that's serious and cartoonist that's funny. And, and every day you plot yourself on a different part of that spectrum According to the appropriateness of the subject matter, in those dark times, you don't rely on humor and uh, and giddiness to to deliver your thoughts, and that's really kind of the true test of a successful satirist. I think is that if you can manage those dark times, there's always a danger of being too sycophantic when you you go into those areas and, and syrupy. So you have to do something that's kind of appropriate and. Often the things that are the simplest, the fewest amount of lines and those with those very simple images, take the longest. There's a great quote, great quote, that goes back to uh, cartoonist uh, Phil May, I understand, in Great Britain. He w- went to the pub one day, and he and he was pulled over by a few editors who said to him, Phil, you get paid a fair bit of money for your cartoons, and the last one you did a- had only seven lines in it. And he thought for a moment, he said, if I could have done it in five lines, I would have charged twice as much. <laughs> those those types of cartoons are the, the tough ones to do.
1: And I think it's noticeable after the reaction to the Danish cartoon saga and then the attack in Paris on several cartoonists and staff at Charlie Hebdo, that the pen and the ability to wield it without constraint has become something of a rallying cry for people standing up to extremists. Carl, do you think you're winning?
2: Well, uh... It's hard to know if we're winning, but it's a battle that we must engage. I think that, uh, you know, we in the West take so much for granted that what we can do, that is be able to uh, make fun of our own heads of state, caricature and mimicry and embodying them on stage is something that happens in such a small part of the world today. And only if you look at the, kind of the span of man's time on this planet, it's a virtual nanosecond. And it is going to continue to be under siege by, you know, strong men everywhere who don't like to have their pictures taken or be seen in positive light. It's something that we need to f- fight for. It's never going to be an easy ride. And if we're not winning, we have to f- make sure we keep on trying.
0: Yes, if I can just add to to what Cal's saying that in the case of the Windsors, which is I've said supremely silly, but but one of the more serious points about it is that I thought it's, it's, a, it's a great and very important thing and in a great long tradition that we can take even the royal family and all these people and send them up and be extremely silly and comical, mildly offensive, whatever. You know, the fact that it's out there and being enjoyed and being commissioned is really important.
1: And Cal, you've got four years to think about drawing Donald Trump regularly. What joy that must hold for for you and how do you think he'll be changing over time?
2: Hmm. So the joy is kind of mixed. It's a joy professionally and it's torture as a citizen but it's still very invigorating professionally. I suspect that if you look purely at his persona and his person, that is the, the way he's depicted, you're going to see these things evolve. They always do. You know, The characters get more and more exaggerated over time while they're in office. And in his case, you can imagine that the flat cap of his hat will get longer <laughs> and then flow down over his eyes more. His kind of body will take the more of the shape of an emperor penguin, I should suspect, and his lip will protrude out in, in Mussolini-esque glory as he pouts more and more during his, you know, very grumpy four years.
1: And by that time, I will have perfected the ability to draw Donald Trump's nose <laughs> under the guidance of Cal. Hayden Gwynn and our Cal Calica, thank you both very much. And you can tweet us your thoughts on the art of caricature at economist.com. That's all for this episode of The Economist Asks. Join us again next time as we run the first in our series of our World In holiday specials. They look ahead to 2017 from the perspectives of Asia, Europe and the US. In London, this is The Economist.